This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and for being patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm your co-host, Tracy Hurley, and this episode, number 312, we're going to be play with magic as we discuss the rest of the wizard class. And joining us in this episode is our co-host from the Tome Show Book Club, and we'll be recording a new episode of that in a few weeks here. Uh, Eric Paquette, welcome back, sir. Oh, hello, guys. And also, our resident historian on loan from Tribality.com, Brandis Stoddard, welcome back, sir. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And lastly, but not leastly, the Tome Show's uh, social media manager, the man who says yes just about every time I look for guests for an episode, the wonderful Ishmael Alvarez. Awesome to be here as always. All right. So this is a continuation of our class series, examining each class in depth. And since our patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show helped point us uh, to the order for the past few classes this is a good time to thank them for their support special thanks go out to keith bryan jill sanders leonard pelletier jeremiah mccoy doug palmer and joe morris thanks for your support <laughs> and since they suggested it the next advice episode uh will be a instead of a regular class examination we'll be doing multi-classing because we'll be done with the classes correct uh so last one we looked at the wizard class but since there's so many different books we decided to split into two discussions. Uh, we introduced the class as a whole and discussed the first three schools last month. In this episode, we'll discuss the schools of enchantment, evoca- evocation, illusion, necromancy, and transmutation. But first, Brandis, since you weren't be able here for the part one of the wizard, uh, and I'm sure we missed something important, did you get a chance to listen to the episode yet, and how did we mess up? Well, I did listen to the episode, and I thought everyone did a really strong job. Uh, Eric in particular caught some stuff that uh, I was thinking I'd have to point out, and then I hear him saying it. I was so proud, sir. You did wonderful. <laughs> well, good, good. Yeah, no, and and uh, those first three classes really stood up to the the test that I've developed in, in the course of doing uh, these episodes on every single class, and that test is after every episode, I want to make that character. I want to make that class, right? I want to, I want to play it. Uh, and every single one of the classes that we talked about in the last one um, made me want to play something from that class. Uh, let's see if these last few schools can, can hold up to the same scrutiny, okay? So we have Enchantment, Evocation, Illusion, Necromancy, and Transmutation. Uh, we will start with Enchantment. Who wants to tell us a little bit, just sort of an overview of what the School of Enchantment is sort of all about? Sure. So the enchanter, uh, the the specialist of the tradition of enchantment, is all about mind control first and foremost. Uh, whatever form of mind control you might need, as long as it isn't uh, brought on through some other more specific means, such as an illusion. Uh, 
the their signature spell by far and away is charm person followed by hold person followed by dominate person that is the core yeah and so and so like all like all of the schools like they all start with this you know you're a savant at this kind of magic and it's easier for you to copy these spells into your spell book etc 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 so they get that it's easier for them to access enchantment spells um, but then you get into the more interesting sort of features. Uh, and for the enchanter, you have hypnotic gaze, instinctive charm, split enchantment, and alter memories. Um, these all continue to like impress me in many ways. Um, the the enchant- enchanter, though, is one that is particularly tricky to me. Uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting. Like, the one that usually makes me go, hmm, how is a DM going to handle this is the illusion school, and we'll get to that one. Uh, but the enchantment one, in this case, is uh, is the one that I feel a little nebulous about. So, I think that's pretty justified, and I think the, the core danger with the class is that... Uh, with the subclass, excuse me, is that so many things you're going to face are going to be outright immune to the spells most characteristic of your class, mm. and um, most of their features, uh, if something is immune to the charmed condition, um, you're not using your subclass features, you're relying on just the rest of your wizard spells. Mm-hmm. Uh, now... Charm person, hold person, dominate person, these are spells that only target humanoids. And so we don't even concern ourselves for anything that isn't humanoid Mm -hmm. uh, as to whether it is immune to the charmed condition. Um, Obviously, you then get to your uh, charm monster, hold monster, uh, dominate monster, and so on, that uh, set aside the uh, humanoid limitation and that helps, but then you get to then you start drilling down to the ubiquity of immunity to the charmed condition, and it it shows up a lot. It shows up in a whole lot of creatures, especially once you um, move into the mid game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I was and I was like the enchanter. I think as a like, there's some really interesting and evocative. Um, concepts in my head characters that that my my brain comes up with as i look at the enchanter they've got their their hypnotic gaze you know they've got sort of the uh what is um who's the wizard in aladdin jafar yeah so they got kind of you know the way jafar uses the the gaze from the staff but you know to to hypnotize people and hold them in their place and and whatever uh which is really cool like the idea that like i can just sort of stare at an enemy and basically shut them down right they're dazed and incapacitated um and and uh, under my control as long as they you know fail to save first um it, that's c- really cool but you're not wrong like that's not going to come up in an awful lot of D campaigns i think that the enchanter is very strong if and only if you know going into the campaign that you're going to be you're going to have a, a dm who makes sure you've got things that can be charmed in most of the encounters in the game. Uh, if you know that there are going to be humanoids as opponents all through the, uh, you know, through every level that you play, as opposed to shifting away from humanoids and now you're mostly fighting giants 
or elementals or dragons or undead. You get my picture. Yeah, and I don't know that I feel like... Like, if I'm playing an enchanter, I don't know that I feel like every... Like, most encounters need to let me show off my my big coolness, right? Because when it works, when the enchanter's thing works, it completely... It has the potential to completely bypass entire encounters, right? Because you can just shut down the enemy with a single spell. Um, so when it works and they can shine, that's great. Because they're still wizards. They still have access to all these other spells. And so there'll still be things they can do in those other scenarios. They just won't be able to do the thing that makes them special. Um, and so, I mean, I would certainly, like, I would consider an enchanter in an urban campaign or political intrigue campaign where there's going to be lots of opportunities to shine with that kind of ability. I would just point out that uh, an evoker or a diviner or an abjurer doesn't have to say to themselves, am I an abjurer in this fight or am I just a wizard in this fight? No, I agree. Uh, but again, like when the enchanter works, it, it can it has the potential to completely shut down entire encounters. Like when it shines, it shines. I would argue brighter than the evoker does. Uh, that's certainly possible. Yeah. Anyway, Brandis and I have been talking about the enchantment. <laughs> does anybody else have thoughts? <laughs> um, I mean, just in so far as the subclass, it seems like they're trying to bring in um, mechanics into the subclass that make it worthwhile for something that isn't just immediately. I take control of a of a creature. For instance, the, the um, instinctive charm uh, lets you redirect an attack, mm-hmm. uh, which is just a completely a combat thing. And so you don't feel like you have to cajole someone or try and come up with some kind of a plausible uh, reason or, or kind of tell them, give, feed them a lie. You yeah. just make an enemy attack, not attack you and potentially attack another. So I yeah. think that's interesting. I've... It keeps you in the game. It gives you something that feels like it will be useful in combat every now and then i'll i'll be playing a game sometimes in D, sometimes when i'm playing torg or whatever and you'll run into a boss that has the ability to basically like throw their minions in front of them every time they get hit you know <laughs> oh you hit me mm-hmm. nope here you hit my minion instead right uh this sort of yeah. feels like a pc version of that right that the players can pull off a little bit of that too mm-hmm. uh and oh go ahead tracy I'm just saying, because I'm just looking through to try to refresh my memory. There are a bunch of other en- enchantment spells, which I know, again, you don't have to be of that school to, to do them, but you can get a lot more of them with the other stuff you're going with. I agree that there are other enchantment spells, but the features really lean into charmed specifically yeah there's several of the features that that explicitly say like this is a charm effect so if something's immune to charm then it just doesn't work like the one like the instinctive charm that that ishmael was just talking about that you can use to defend yourself explicitly says if they're immune to charm it doesn't have any effect right well i was just looking more at some of the other enchantment ones and they have a lot of like the the animal ones are Mm mm-hmm um, enchantment, and I'm not saying that. Obviously, you know, you, you don't get the same level of bump from right. the features, but they are. You can have more of them, given the amount of time and money is halved for them. So, you mm-hmm. just might have. So, if you're doing like a forest campaign, it might. It still might not be necessarily a bad idea. And the and the the tenth level split enchantment ability does not key off of uh, the charm 
keyword, right? So it just basically says if you've got an enchantment spell that targets one creature, you can instead target two creatures. You've just doubled the effectiveness of all those enchantment spells, whether they're charmers or not, right? Right. And again, if you're playing the the this sort of urban or political intrigue one, when you get to 14th level, that alter memory uh, ability um, is one that, that it kind of fits into that category of this is a little nebulous of how a, a, a DM, I think, might adjudicate it, but it has a lot of potential to be like, oh, I charmed this person for a while, they ran around, but because I have alter memory, I can also make sure they just completely forgot that they helped us, right? And now suddenly there's a mystery going around and it turns out you're the, the culprit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And there can be a lot of fun in that. I could I could totally see an enchanter uh, really shining um, a lot in those kinds of situations. Right. Like like I would totally be on board playing an enchanter. I think in Dragon Heist, would they use all those features in every situation? Maybe not. But because you're in a, it's an urban adventure and you're in a city the whole time, there's an awful lot of humanoids, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's true. true. So it only gets you. Um, hypnotic gaze because that's true because it's low level yeah. uh, uh, Eric you were going to say something yes but basically your your enchanter would be your face the person who interacts with the people and tricks them into various different ways based on just personality alone because odds are you're going to have a high charisma to take advantage of these so you're mm -hmm. going to be socializing and that is, as you previously said it would be good in an intrigue or it could be good in a high situation if you're trying to sneak into vaults and all that, which can be done at higher level characters, not just for Dragon Heist. And that that's actually makes it interesting to me as well, because the enchanter makes it, gives me an idea for a wizard that is the face, that is the charming, you know, rogue sort of character, which is not the archetype I norm, my brain normally places on top of wizards. Um, so it, it does give a different angle of, of a wizard that sort of defies some expectations which I'm always interested in, defying expectations. Okay, anything else on enchantment before we uh, move on to evocation? I think we're good. All right, let's blow stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> so the evoker, which is the person who specializes in evocation, uh, evocation is the school of magic that's all about blowing things up, right? It's all about damage dealing. It's the fireballs and the lightning bolts and the, the uh, magic missiles and, and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so most of their abilities are ones that are like, hey, do more damage. Or in the case of their first uh, real ability, that second level, um, the one that says, hey, I'm going to throw a fireball into the middle of the fight. And yeah, I know those party members there, but here I can make sure that they don't get hit. Right. Yeah. Sculpt spells is super, super good. Yeah. I mean, and it's one of those things that like. I think there used to be in third edition and maybe in fourth edition, there were like higher level like feats and, and prestige classes and that kind of stuff that you could get that would give you those kinds of, of abilities. Um, but it's interesting to me that the evoker like, no, we're just good at that. Like right away. Like we're before we even get fireball, I can hit you with a fireball and not hurt you. I remember in the second edition, in told magic, they had those meta magic spells that mm. change and could do, such things as skull spells and all. They had metamagic uh, in second edition? I know they did in third. Uh, they sure did it in second in Tome of Magic. He's absolutely oh, right. There you go. Yep. See, look at that. Uh, oh, wow. It was a whole spell unto itself, yeah. not a modification as such of an existing spell. Right on. 
So that's that must be where the idea came from for uh, in in third edition, right? Oh yeah, they kept the names. Yep. yep. Very cool. Could you imagine uh, how Binwin would be if Jim Dark Magic had this? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and and I also like the the fourteenth level because like like I said, almost all of them, other than sculpt spells, um, all of the rest of them end up meaning like we just do more damage, right? Uh, potent cantrip means that uh, sixth level means that um, if you save against a cantrip, you still take half damage. Um, empowered evocation means that you can add your intelligence modifier to a damage roll. Um, and somebody explained that one to me because it's really short and a little bit vague. So tell me exactly how do you envision empowered evocation working? Uh, well, are they just adding their uh, intelligence modifier to every every yeah, spell? It's a- it's a flat, let's call it four or five points to the damage roll of every vocation you cast. And boy, is that going to be a lot of them with a feature like that. And, you know, uh, when you're tossing eight dice for a fireball, five doesn't seem like a lot, right. but it's pretty close to throwing two more dice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you break down the averages. I was just confused because of the, like, for every invocation, for any invocation spell, but for one damage roll. So does that, like, for instances, like, say I cast a Firebolt and I hit two targets, that it only adds the bonus to one of those targets and not the other one? How did you hit hit two targets with Firebolt? Isn't there, what am I thinking of? There's, isn't there spells? Uh, for example, chain lightning. Chain lightning, you are able to attack more than one one target because of the chain lightning. It will only you would add your modifier to, to just one of the lightning bolts that you're okay. with. Wait, do you you roll damage separately for chain lightning, or is it a single roll that applies well, to all the targets? Um, gosh, why am I forgetting? It's a flame fire bolt. It's not the cantrip, but it's a second level spell. Um. Is that the one and, I was thinking uh, of? Yeah. It, okay. and I uh, searing ray? Uh, scorching ray? That's scorching ray. Scorching ray. That, I keep thinking it's a flame, but yeah, scorching ray. Uh, but I do recall seeing some question on Twitter asking that exactly, and I'm almost certain, well, I shouldn't say I'm almost certain. It's just a fuzzy memory. Mm-hmm. But Jeremy Crawford said, yes, you do only add it once, because otherwise you'd be doing magic missiles, and you'd be adding that damage to every single magic missile, and uh, that gets crazy pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost no one that I've ever gamed with uh, rolls only 1d4 and applies that number <laughs> of missiles of magic missiles, but that is the formal ruling. Uh, and it matters because of this, right? So that's where that's where it comes up. It's just because it's I'm used to, I'm so used to these kinds of features being, you know, having two or three sentences sort of going through and and walking you through the process. And this one is just a a, a single sentence ability. Um, and so I just really wanted to make sure we parsed that out and made sure we we understood at least how we would um, handle it. And I like the over channel. That's always a really fun concept for uh, a character um it's one of those things that in every edition like you get somebody who just wants to like this is the thing that really matters i'm gonna pump everything i have into it can i burn like every spell slot and do extra damage or whatever right this Mm -hmm. gives that the evoker and the opportunity to be that kind of wizard and it's not um it's not quite like i'm gonna throw every spell slot into it and just really blow everything up but it means that every time i cast an evocation spell or uh it's not even that it's just a damage dealing spell right it doesn't even have to be evocation um 
first through fifth level, I can just maximize the damage, right? It just does maximum damage automatically. The first time I do it, it's free. So I can do that once. Uh, is that once per day or once per once per rest? Uh, again, before you finish a long rest. Long rest. So it's once mm. per day um, that you can you can maximize the damage, or you can do it more, but you're going to take damage, right? So you take a, a what is it, two d twelve necrotic damage per level of the spell. Um, and I could see, you know, you're throwing around fifth level spells, taking ten d twelve necrotic damage in order to maximize that spell. You better be really sure that that's the last encounter of the day, right? Oh boy. Although it would be really funny to start throwing out vampiric touches with that thing. Because <laughs> you take damage oh, and then you heal? <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> oh my god, it, because it's when you cast, not when you deal damage with. Oh, oh, you just be maximized for the whole run. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. oh, that's that's rude. I mean, they don't they don't exactly cancel each other out because you never know what's going to come up on the die, right? But but uh, right, but your damage will be maximized the damage you deal. So, and that's yeah. what you gain back. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's you what you gain back. Yes. Yeah, assuming you don't lose the spell quickly, uh, yeah, you're going to get paid back on that one. <laughs> Man. Uh, on a hit, the target takes 3d6 necrotic, and you regain hit points equal to half the amount of necrotic damage dealt. And can you, ups- so, can you upscale that one to higher levels? Oh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. You're going to want to use higher level slots for that. Oh, yeah. See, see now, like, the Evoker was one of these that I didn't have a, a, a firm, like, real big inspiration from, because it's not... It, it's not super well ironically it's really flashy but not in any unique way right uh but now i just suddenly got tons of inspiration good job ishmael <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, it's, it's a third level necromancy okay so you you could be able to level it up up to level five in silver channel once mm-hmm, you get correct. to level six you can't you can't over channel right is that based on the slot level, or is it still a third level spell that's cast with a higher level slot? That is probably a question for Jeremy Crawford. Yeah, I yeah. I've I seen mean, him answer that before, and I don't remember how it parses. Well, and I'm not sure this one spell, but on spells, I'm right? not sure what. I mean, rules is written. I would say it says first through fifth level spell, but in my mind, as a DM, once you've you've bumped it up to a higher level slot, then it counts as a higher level spell to me. That's how I, I would probably rule it that uh, way as well. But yeah, I could see yeah, people yeah. really arguing in the other direction too. Uh, I do want to make the quick note that um, you said Evoker was sort of less flashy in some ways. It's less involved in the rules. And that is, I think, in large part because it is the one that's in the D&D basic rules. They, they wanted it to be the most approachable of mm-hmm. the wizard. See, I also think it's because, like, the Evoker is is what pe- – like, this has been a classic sort of type of wizard that everybody's been making since first edition, right? The sure. – I'm going to take all the big blasting spells and try to maximize how much damage I can do. And the Evoker does that. It just – it does more damage. Uh, it, it, it evokes, right? It blows things up, you know? So, um, like, it does what it's supposed to do. It does it well. Uh, but it's been doing it for, for decades now. So it's just not unique to me anymore. That's fair. Um, one of the ones that does come off as interesting to me is the next one, and that's the School of Illusion. Um, 
the school of illusion is is the one that I think I, I mentioned is has always been a bit weird and nebulous to me, and it still kind of is because illusion in general is always kind of weird uh, in terms of how the DM because the DM could just adjudicate the heck out of it to the, to the point that your illusion was ineffective, but of course that's not very fun for the illusionist, right? Um, so there's a lot of, like there's a lot of wiggle room in illusion because it's a lot of it's a lot of how well do you sort of describe what you create and how clever are you with what you make with your illusions uh, and how that all works and what have you. And yet, I have an illusionist in my party right now that I that I DM and I, I'm having a lot of fun sort of letting him go crazy like that. Uh, that's something that I definitely got into uh, some sort of thornier situations in back in third edition. Um, I feel like they've gotten a bit more of a handle on it here. um, All told. Well, and I would venture to say that they've made it a lot easier to understand what happens when someone inspects an illusion. They've got clear rules. It's not this weird, like you got to make a save and then a save. I, I, I remember 3.5 3.5 making it really weird to figure out like how do you know an illusion is an illusion and it wasn't it was almost like grappling rules where it wasn't clear cut uh, but now it is you know exactly what you need to do and uh, ironically your wizard is going to be the one most likely to make those uh, illusion saving throws because they're usually intelligence based mm-hmm. and and that said I think the illusionist school being an illusionist um, still throws in some like the DM's going to have to make some calls about what is and is not okay because it's do, things like malleable illusion and illusory reality um, throw a lot of weird hiccups into that whole conversation, right? The, the idea of malleable illusion at sixth level is that the, the illusionist can cast an illusion and then change the illusion um, uh, after it's been cast. Uh, and it says, you know, they're changing the nature of the illusion, but it also says it's within the normal parameters of the illusion. But there's some like wiggle room there, I think, because the nature of the illusion is that it shouldn't be able to change, uh, you know, uh, within the normal parameters. And so um, it, it opens some interest. Like I had to have some conversations with my player uh, and, and he was good about doing that. He's like, hey, so here are the illusion things. And before I decide to to make this character an illusionist, let's talk through how you would play this and how what you would allow and what you wouldn't allow and what have you to make sure it would be okay i definitely think that's a very good approach and uh it sounds like it's created really good effects for you so i recommend it to everyone yeah no i mean i mean it's it's certainly not new advice that the players and dms should be talking to each other right (laughs) for sure sure. but calling this out as something that needs that kind of conversation is a very strong point. I I think so. I think so. Because if the player has certain expectations about what they're going to be able to do with their crazy illusion abilities, um, and then the DM says no, then that becomes an issue, right? Certainly can. Somebody's not having the fun that they're supposed to be having now, either the DM or the player, depending on how it goes. You know. Uh, I also wanted to add the historical note on uh, the tradition of uh, illusion and illusionists. Uh, this was the first specialist wizard ever introduced in D&D, mm-hmm. going back at least to AD&D first edition. I haven't uh, done the deep reading to see if there was an OD&D illusionist 
class that was separate from the magic user. Um, and it survived as the only uh, listed specialist for all of first ed. And then it was just the most prominent specialist in second, mm -hmm. though you could specialize in anything in second edition, just like you could in third. Um, in second, it was the only type of magic user that gnomes could be, I believe. Mm -hmm. That sounds right. Now, uh, here, here's my question, though. You're right that, that the illusionist was sort of the first specialist wizard. Um, but I don't understand why. <laughs> Like, uh, because like in my experience until recently, I, there were so few people that played illusionist because it was always going to be so nebulous about what the, the player expected and what the DM was going to allow, um, that most people in my experience just avoided it altogether. So if that's the case, and maybe my experience is not typical, but if that's the case, um, you know, why, why is the illusion the first thing? Like, why was it so important in that, those early years that there be a specialist illusionist that's different than the normal wizard? I, I think that there was probably a, a trend within the supporting fiction uh, at that time to distinguish sort of a sense of, well, I cast spells, but the things I do are just tricks and illusions from... Um, I cast this whole other range of spells mm -hmm. because uh, in AD&D first edition, I just had a fully separate spell list from users. There was a lot of overlap, but it was listed as a fully separate thing. So, um, the, so the illusionist is trying to, to capture like the real world magician idea that's just sort of tricking people? I think that's part of it. I think that uh, you can look at it as in some ways uh, maybe ironically a magic user that is a nod to low magic uh, because oh, it's just an illusion mm -hmm. um, I think if you go back to the kinds of uh, dirty tricks that DMs liked to pull in uh, we're talking about I guess the very end of the 70s all through the 80s and into the 90s there's a lot of um, this guy seems to throw a lot of fireballs. Oh, well, they're just illusions. Kind mm. of kind of tricking you to see if you know to declare that you disbelieve uh, <laughs> as, as part of that weird metagame. Mm -hmm. uh, I was mostly uh, DMing in, in second edition and haven't played anything really from before that. So um, I don't really have a grasp of how it all felt. I can see what's on the page, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and then I had questions about the the 14th level ability of the illusionist. I, and I know we've gone from history, and, and I want to get back into some crunch here. Um, but that illusory reality piece <laughs> is, is interesting and fun. Um, so illusory reality at 14th level allows the illusionist to cast an illusion and then make something of in the illusion real, like make one object in the illusion real. Uh, and while it says the object can't deal damage or otherwise directly harm anybody, um, like there's a point where that stretches credulity, right? Uh, or believability. Uh, you know, if I make an illusory 
spear sticking out of the ground and make it real and somebody walks into it, does it not hurt them? What happens? That's that's quite a Shakespearean question. <laughs> <laughs> well, this comes up because I have players who are like, what if I cast Illusory Terrain and there's a river of lava mm-hmm. and then somebody right. walks into the river of lava and I made the lava real, if we call that an object. Well, I think the, I think the lava itself will be physically real, but the it won't have the the heat will not be damaging, so it would show up like the person stepping on it that they are. Hey, look, I am immune to fire. You can't harm me. Type thing situation. Mm. So it can be used from that angle for tricks. Same thing for a spear. You might be walking on the spear, or just holding, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I, I suppose it could be trick lava, assuming that you agree <laughs> that lava is an object in the first place. Right, sure. I mean, the, you could, but you could also argue like they make, okay, I make an illusion of a wall of iron and then I make the wall of iron real and oh, it fell on somebody. <laughs> How does that not hurt them? <laughs> or do they instantly, right. as soon as it would, they would take damage, do they instantly disbelieve it? Or how does that work, you know? Well, and then there's things like, you could do the opposite, right? Like you could make something safe over something not safe. What do you mean? Uh, well, let's say there is lava and then you say like there's a bridge over it or something and then it goes away because you can dismiss it, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> it's one minute duration can definitely expire. Well, so... and, and the spell, I mean, a lot of the illusion spells could be dismissed by the caster anyway, so. So yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, and I think that's that's a, an interesting way of hand, a, a creative way that an illusionist, and that's what I really like about having this illusionist in my party is that um, he is he is uh, you know really stretching his creativity to see what interesting things he can do with illusions that normally uh, he wouldn't be able to do, and and I think what makes the illusion spells a little less nebulous and more functional uh, in this edition is that a lot of the illusion spells. Um, aren't so, um, you know, they don't require so much sort of creativity on the part of the player, right? You throw out a hypnotic pattern, it's always the same. You do, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of spells like that. They sort of just, they just do a thing, you know, like any other class. Well, and the inclusion of psychic damage is really helpful because you have mm-hmm. things like Phantasmal Killer, mm-hmm. and they're very explicit about saying, yeah, these do psychic damage, and immediately you're like, oh, well, of course. It's it's just damaging your your ego or your psyche or whatever. Right. That makes sense. And so, you know, it's it's almost like a Freddy Krueger situation where you're like, okay, we get it. It's the fire's not really hurting you, but you think that so much that it is actually hurting you. Or even or even if it's not, like I, it's one of the ways I can I oftentimes abstract hit points is not that it's um, you know actual damage, whether physically or mentally or whatever, but it's it's battle preparedness that when I take hit points of damage, it's not because I'm, I'm injured, but because I'm sort of back on my heels and my defense isn't as strong or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So taking that psychic damage is, oh, I'm distracted and 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 I'm you know busy dealing with all those phantasms and whatever. And that sets me up so that when my hit points are low enough, somebody can come up and, and take the final blow by shoving a sword through my chest or whatever. Totally. So. So do we think that um, the Roadrunner would be a good <laughs> illusionist? <laughs> illusionist, yeah. Because hmm. <laughs> uh, the Roadrunner does, for instance, create illusions that, and then changes the nature of them. Uh-huh. Uh huh. 
Like he, you could he, say illusory. He paints the railroad tunner, tunnel and then it becomes real. <laughs> right. right. And he, he goes through it and then suddenly Wiley Coyote tries to go through and it's it's solid. Man. <laughs> I, I love the idea of pulling a roadrunner with illusory reality. <laughs> <laughs> that is horrible and I love it. <laughs> and and now I'm starting to think like wait a minute, could the illusionist actually do that? Could they create the illusion of a hole in the wall and then make it real and walk through the hole in the wall? That's not really an object. Is a hole an object? Oh That's man. Cool. I mean, I guess the absence of an object, I don't know. Right. I mean, you're you're bubbling my noodle now. It's <laughs> getting so philosophical. I mean, there was there was in second edition an old spell called Dare Not Dare which had 50% chance of creating a hole in the wall or not, depending on how you look at it. So, there is history of that in the game. So, uh, could possibly, I would, yeah. That, that's a deep cut there. That, that, is a, that is a deep cut. Wow. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Now I've got something to chew on before my next game um, with my illusionist. Uh, man, okay. And, and what's more, like, uh, so one of the things the illusionist does um, that really... Um, you know, you know, wizards are squishy. I don't know if you've heard, right? And they don't like being on the front lines. They don't like getting hit by things. Uh, and so you notice a lot of the classes have little things to help them not do that, right? Like enchantment throws other people in the way and, and that kind of stuff. Um, the illusionist gets one of those with 10th level in that you create, an, uh, you instantly and instinctually as a reaction, throw up an illusory duplicate uh, that they attack instead of you, Right. So that and that's fine. Uh, it's a it's a once per per rest sort of um, avoid getting hit when you're otherwise would be hit. Um, right. I mean, it's it's a tiny mirror image, and sure. mirror image is one of your go tos anyway. So and it, and it's fun and it's interesting and and I like it. The player that I have that's playing an illusionist is also a Sferf Neblin, which means he already has an ability as a Sferf Neblin. That's a, that allows him. I think it's called fade away. That allows him to basically do the exact same thing. Anytime he he would otherwise be hit, he he momentarily turns invisible and steps back, and they miss. You know, so now it's like I can never hit the guy because you know if it's not one of these abilities, it's the other one. So just lay down the fireballs, you'll be fine. There you go. <laughs> yeah, dodge that. <laughs> no, 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 interesting race. Uh, class combination is the fact that they are pretty like notice of the gnome illusionist, which is a tradition in D and D, because the forest gnome starts with minor illusion. So at second level, an illusionist gets minor illusion, but if they already have it, they get to choose another another uh, another cantrip. Right. So since the gnome, since the gnome illusionist would have have oh, uh, minor actually, illusion, they actually get an extra spell. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's cool. All right, are we good with illusionists? We've 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 really uh, thrown up the curtain on that one, right? Huh? Or have we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk necromancy. Necromancy is an, an interesting one for me um, because there's a long history of like in D and D of, of the necromancer, like raising their army of the undead uh, and what have you in third edition, I would argue that clerics were actually way better necromancers than necromancers were. Um, if you, you know, chose the right uh, domains and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, in, as you all know, it, it takes a necromancer to raise a family. <laughs> but um bum. 
So the necromancer has these abilities that um that like so instead of it being able to defend against attacks like the illusionist did like we just talked about instead it has this ability of uh when it kills things it's just going to like drain the life out of it and heal itself. They kind of turn into low level vampires that way, right? Mm-hmm. And and then after that it's just sort of they're good at dealing with necromantic damage and they're good with dealing with uh, undead creatures. And that's that's more or less the necromancer, right? It's it's I'm good at making undead and um, necromancy's not a problem for me. Uh yeah. Um well, in your to undeath, I think is an absolutely great feature because it makes you a little bit undead. Mm. And I think that really leans into the creep factor. Of well, you're, you're tireless. You you are immune to, um, uh, so, yeah. The the part where your hit point maximum can't be reduced, um, is sort of a fix for um, a, a bunch of things that could be terrible for you. And mm-hmm. I think it's really neat that, you know, you're undead enough to shake that off. Right. And then what's more, um, because of the grim harvest, that second level ability, uh, you know you'll just keep healing those hit points and, and so they can't reduce your maximum and you can just sort of keep healing yourself by killing things. Um, and that works out really well. I think there's a, I feel like there's a spell that one of my players used to cast all the time. That was a necromancy spell that basically like if they finished off, if they killed a creature, um, then they got temporary hit points or something. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. This is the problem with DMing all the time and not playing. Right. Um, and, and so there was this um, weird loophole workaround that the party sort of just agreed to, and that was that they never killed anything. They always knocked out the enemies at the at the end, and then the necromancer or the person with the spell went around at the end and finished them all off, right? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that bugs me. Well, and so... <laughs> What makes it a little bit better for me is that it only works at first level or higher spells, uh, the Grim Harvest does. So if they're going to do that uh, in order to regain hit points, they're burning spell slots to do it. Uh, and they may need those spell slots later. So mm-hmm. at least it's not free. At least you're not able to run around with cantrips and do it. Uh, it's true, though, uh, if you have Empiric Touch running, well... <laughs> <laughs> Extra good, huh? Well, um, it, it is uh, first you're healing from the damage you're dealing, and then you're healing uh, from the kill. From the kill. And it's more because it's from the school of necromancy. And it's a spell of first level or higher that you're killing them with. Yep. So, I mean. Yes. Uh, this episode brought to you by Vampiric Touch. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Like, I actually get a kickback from a Vampiric Touch scroll merchant. There you go. <laughs> Uh, and then their their other two abilities uh, are the undead thralls and the command undead abilities. Uh, undead thralls basically says when you use animate dead to make uh, skeletons and zombies and things that they're a little bit better, right? They they're in their hit point maximum is increased a little bit, and they they get a proficiency bonus to their damage rolls. Um, so it kind of sort of makes it's kind of sort of makes like these undead creatures be like your the necromancer's animal companions, except they don't scale nearly as well. Right. No, uh, but given the fact that uh, you can have that effect of many undead, especially at higher levels, mm. um, 
you you can have a slightly more effective army, which is nice, especially if you're attacking some big bad or if you're trying to make them just uh, be like a retinue of retainers. They can they can hold their own against other low level threats. That's true. Yeah, there's a there's sort of a place where you can turn the corner on the action economy, and it's just amazing. It's tough to do, but yeah, when you have it rolling, it's good. So, so tell us how to do it then, if it's tough to do. Uh, well, <laughs> you just have to uh, have the right number of creatures and be able to protect them long enough to actually get them all attacking a target at the same time mm. so that you are getting the action economy advantage of uh, the line you can target one additional corpse or pile of bones creating another zombie or skeleton. Um, that That's, I think, the big key here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had someone explain to me how I've underestimated undead thralls before is what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> on that trap again. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like... So in 3rd edition... Um, there was a lot of uh, builds for basically for summoning armies every time you got into a fight. Druids did it with animal, uh, it was a summon nature's ally. Uh, wizards could do it with summon monster and necromancers or, or uh, death clerics or whatever could do it with um, summon undead. Uh, where, you know, you just bring in so many uh, creatures that you, 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 your side ended up with so many actions that yeah you could just overwhelm everybody uh i did it i did it occasionally on the other side as a dm in fourth edition where it was just like you know what they're just minions but you know you're taking 20 attacks this turn you know (laughs) so um uh and so yeah so you can start to do a little bit of that uh as you with undead thralls and they're a little bit better so they're doing a little bit more damage and and all that kind of um, scales well. And then Command Undead is the one where it's like, hey, there's already undead out there. I can just sort of take them and make them mine uh, and make them obey me instead of the, per- the person who created them. Uh, I really like uh, versions of Necromancers, especially from previous editions, where they don't create a lot of undead themselves, but they are great at fighting undead. Um, mm. There was a complete book of Necromancers in second edition that had a version that did that. And yet, if you're going to make a necromancer that's all about um, not allowing for the undead sort of thing, and I've, I've had people play those kinds of necromancers, um, I'm not sure that you're getting the biggest bang for your buck on this on this specialization because uh, you're not going to get anything out of the undead thralls if you're not creating undead. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I wrote a, uh, a variant... Uh, necromancer in my blog to uh handle exactly that over at tribality.com over at uh uh, brandistotter.com brandistotter.com okay right on so people can go check that out there okay so anything else about necromancers uh i was just gonna add that it would be kind of neat to see someone play a necromancer that uh would use animal corpses instead and so if they're really going to be conscientious they could always go down Mm. to like a, a slaughterhouse and start raising the bones of like cows for instance or horses and <laughs> mm-hmm. those are those are intimidating uh, all on their own mm-hmm. um w- one of the one of the things i did recently was uh include a skeletal pterodactyl because they've got those if you see a pterodactyl skeleton they've got like giant whip arms and they can just hit you like 15 feet out mm-hmm. so you just got to get a little creative and you don't have to be an evil bastard yeah, well, and and you mentioned the the idea of the necromancer being evil, right? And certainly that's the stereotype. 
Um, mm-hmm. And yet I've played in or been in or seen different settings and different games where the necromancer was not evil, right? I've, I've seen the necromancer like Brandis described that was all about the, um, you know, that death has a proper place and I'm here to make sure that it happens, you know, getting rid of the undead sort of thing. Um, in which case the necromancer class does that pretty well, except for that one um, thrall ability. Um, and then I've also, you know, then Eberron also handles this uh, a little bit differently um, where I think it's Eberron. Yeah. Where they have the, there's the one nation in, in the, of the five nations where they have the uh, undead servants and uh, you know, the, the dead are just considered to be a, a sort of a resource to be used. They're just tools. They're, you know, the, the spirits aren't there anymore. There's might as well make use of it sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. The Carnathi soldiers go serve their country. Yeah. Twice. <laughs> well, and and their argument is they're they're dead. Like we're not hurting anybody. Their souls have moved on, or or whatever. Um, this is just this is just material. It's you know they might as well serve. So it's, it's like their second tour of duty. Right. <laughs> Only it doesn't cost them anything because they're not there. <laughs> okay. Any anything else about the necromancer? All right, then let's talk transmutation. This is our last one, the School of Transmutation. This is the school that's all about uh, turning things from one thing into another thing, right? Yes. I played a, a gnome transmuter from level 1 to 14 now. So I, I've done through the whole thing. But yeah, basically doing alchemy, uh, changing your material or people into other stuff having effects on others. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where you get your fetter fall. It's where you get your haste and your slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've had fun. It's very creative to, when you're using your, like the minor alchemy of changing material to do stuff from a, when you're not in combat, when you're outside and exploring and surviving, I've used it before to transform rocks into something that exudes heat so that we could have a camp outside and keep warm without creating a fire, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Or, you know, you turn the, the the rock that you found outside into a giant silver nugget and use it to pay pay for your whatever you're buying, and an hour later, ha, 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 too bad, you just got a rock, right? <laughs> if you're not playing the good character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I really like the the addition of the transmuter stone. Um, it is it is clearly their way of doing the classic philosopher stone uh, mm-hmm. for D&D, or, or if, you're, if you're reading American Harry Potter, the sorcerer stone, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, where it's basically the alchemist or the transmuter in this case makes a special stone. Uh, takes about eight hours, throw to, throws together this stone, and you can choose. Like there's a benefit that whoever's holding the stone gets this benefit, whether it be uh, you get dark vision, you get to increase your speed, proficiency in con saves, or resistance to a type of damage that you choose. Uh, you can hold it yourself. You can give it to other people. Uh, I think it's got a lot of value. You can only ever have one, no matter how much time you make, because as soon as you make one, the other one start, stops working. Uh, but then when you get to 14th level, it becomes yep. even better, right? Then it becomes the real uh, Philosopher's Stone. 
because at 14th level you can consume the stone in order to do one of these bigger things and that's where you get like the legend of the philosopher's stone you know um, restoring people's youth or bringing people back to life or curing diseases because it does all of those things those are each one of the things that you could do um, as well as you know just change the the nature of something right spend 10 minutes and just change that non-magical object into something else uh, that that transmuter stone and the way it develops ends up becoming really interesting. But I've talked a lot. Somebody else talk. I really, really can just chime in and say I think the uh, transmuter stone is a really compelling feature. Um, I love that they made transmuters into full-on alchemists and they explored uh, that in multiple features. I think it tells a story and it does so in a really slick way. Um, okay. I go had ahead. fun with my transmuter stone given to my party members while I was playing and said, here, what feature do you need? Oh, that, here you go. Most of the time was either we done it for giving like re resistance to one of the elements or we were facing some poisonous gas and he, our monk needed a proficiency in constitution saving throw. So here you go. So... It really it was really useful for those. They didn't quite use it at level 14 because we just got to level 14. Mm -hmm. that much. Well, and what's more, like, I like the fact that the transmuter stone, like, you have that selection of options in terms of benefits, but you're not stuck with it. Because if you're holding the stone as the transmuter, every time you cast a first level spell, you can change the benefit. Yeah. So if the, if the situation calls for, oh, we didn't realize we were going to be going into the, the pit of fire, let me cast a quick first level spell. Now it gives you resistance to fire. Let's move on, you know. So it's, it's very versatile. I like that. Yeah. No, it's, it's awesome. It's also the only way a wizard can cast any spell that would bring someone back to life. There's no other oh, way that's for a true. wizard to do that. Aside from wish, I suppose. Uh -huh, but. Uh -huh. Still, like at the level that you get it, you're you're doing pretty good if you need to bring a party member back to life. Which, on that topic, if you have gems that are not diamonds, you can use the Philosopher's Stone to turn, like, let's say a thousand gold piece value ruby into a diamond. Mm -hmm. Voila, you have the material component for the um, restore for the raised dead. How are you changing the ruby into a diamond? The first uh, property of that master transmuter. You can transmute one non-magical object into another non-magical object of similar size and mass, and it's oh, okay. And it and it doesn't have the the same stipulations that the uh, the minor alchemy does that it, you can't do gemstones. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, like I like I said, every time we do one of these things, I, I end up wanting to walk away making every single class. Um, I totally want to make a transmuter that explains all of its magic through alchemy, right? That everything is, uh, you know, that even like I cast haste on you, but I've really got this like gooey salve that I just sort of throw on you and it's, <laughs> you know, and it splatters all over you and you soak it in and, and get fast or whatever. Like everything I want to start explaining through alchemy, uh, just cause it's fun and, and, and quirky. Um, we didn't talk about the, the shape changer ability, um, yeah. Which basically makes the transmuter good at polymorph, right? Yeah, you get a polymorph and you get a uh, once per rest, you can transform yourself into a challenge rating one or lower uh, 
uh, creature, which is very useful for purposes of sneaking to place, scouting to areas, transporting, or I've even used it at one point for helping transport where transforming the giant eagle and here, let's grab some people. So. Now, Polymorph does not allow you to change forms through the duration, right? Like, you can't be a snake one minute and a bird the next minute or something. No. Okay. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. I was, I was going to say, then clearly Merlin from the old Sword in the Stone cartoon was a transmuter because the way he was, you know, jumping shapes all over the place. But but that doesn't, doesn't quite explain it, does it? I think Cheap Change does that. Yeah, That's I, think a sh- I think Cheap Change does that, yeah. Yeah. So very good. Anything else about the transmuter? Anything we missed or anything that we that's worth talking about? Um, no, I mean I'm I'm playing a transmuter right now, ironically at 14th level as well, uh, having a blast. Uh, one of my favorite wizard characters so far. Uh, I would just add that I'm pretty sure transmutation savant is one of the strongest savants because I think there are more transmutation spells than oh. uh, most other individual schools. Hmm. Right on. I didn't. Uh, I've, n- I've never counted them up, but I believe you. Uh, I know that necromancy is one of the uh, shortest lists, along with I think divination. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not until you get to Xanathar's that they have a spell at every level. Um, but I think transmutation does really well for itself. Right on. So I think I've come away from this wanting to make everything except maybe an enchanter, and I'm not. Real thrilled about a necromancer, um, you know. Evoker is is what everybody wants, but it's not super unique. But, but you know, definitely, uh, I'm all about the illusionist with a DM uh, permission, and and transmutation sounds fun regardless, right? I just want to make a a weird little uh, halfling or gnome transmuter with a bandolier full of weird chemicals that he keeps throwing on people in order to to justify his spell effects. Then everybody gets to the end of the combat and they're just covered with all these weird different colored splatters all over themselves, you know. <laughs> it's like a paintball game. Right, exactly. Exactly. Ooh, that's even that's even better. He's gotta have a little paintball gun that he shoots people uh, with to do his spells. <laughs> and then you use your presentation cantrip to clean everybody up. Or or you don't and you just let him run around messy and and, and weird colored. I think that's fun. <laughs> All right. Uh, so any any other thoughts, any last thoughts, uh, things that people want to discuss with our last part of our last class? Do we want to give a quick uh, shout to the uh, uh, wizard traditions in Sword Coast Adventures Guide and Xanathar's? You are welcome to shout them out if you'd like to, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll do it super quick. So you've got the Bladesinger, which is the uh, classic um, elf uh, fighter mage here done um, – as a actual wizard subclass, mm-hmm. um, sort of uh, going the other way from the Eldritch Knight. Right. Um, it's it's a, an interesting approach. Um, I haven't really studied it in depth. I know that they uh, spend spell slots for extra mitigation because they're still wizards, guys. Um, <laughs> and then with uh, war magic in Xanathar's, uh, it is sort of what would happen if you were sort of an abjurer and sort of an evoker? Okay, go. Yeah. Well, um, and, and both of those have um, 
some some history and some lore to him, right? The Bladesinger is historically a a, a Forgotten Realms high elven wizard tradition, um, uh, right? And, uh, really, all the way back to the elf class of original D and D, right? Yeah. Uh, and then um, the the war wizard is uh, is a is a thing in uh, Cormier specifically. There's a whole class mm-hmm. of war wizards in Cormier that. Um, are part of the military there that I think they were trying to create the ability to do that kind of thing. I also found it interesting that as they expanded new options in other books, um, they quickly got away from the schools. Like they'd hit all this, all these schools in the player's handbook. Um, and then after that, it was like, Oh no, we can still do different builds of, of wizard that don't have anything to do with specializing in a school. Let us show you how. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's also some history of the, uh, the School of War Magic in the War Mage class from Complete Arcane in 3rd edition, mm. where it was a uh, super stripped down, fairly pure artillery class. Um, and this is a nod to that in its mechanics, and it's a nod to War Wizards of Cormir, as you pointed out, in its lore. Right. Right on. All right. Any last thoughts? I had other possible topics that we could talk about, but we're already at an hour, so uh, we'll leave those those alternative topics off the list for t- today. All right. Then I guess we will call that the end of the episode. We'd like to say thank you to our guests. Uh, Brandis, where can people find you online? I can be found uh, on uh, tribality.com, um, where I have been writing for several years now on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard and also uh, my personal blog is www.brendastoddard.com Ishmael? Uh, I can primarily be found on Twitter and on Facebook as Elven Wizard King uh, just how it sounds and uh, I do some products for Fat Goblin Games and it can be found under my name of Ishmael Alvarez um, at DriveThruRPG or RPG Now Awesome! And Eric? You can find me on Twitter at Eric M. Pax, or E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q, where we can chat and all that. Else. And, and you can also find him on the Tome Show Book Club every that other month. True. We'll be talking about uh, Night of the Black Rose uh, soon. Yes. And we'd also like to say thank you to all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or DMs Guild, or being a patron of the show at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. That goes straight to me, and then I can either distribute it out to other people or respond from there. You can uh, find Tracy on Twitter. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H and then Dark Magic in the way that you would expect it to be. Uh, I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, and you can tweet the show at The Tome Show. And that's episode 312, where we spent hours and hours reading a book to learn reality-altering spells, thus proving the adage that knowledge is power. In this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. Unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. D&D, unless you want to, like me. You don't think we fancy, let me teach you about class. Priest, fighter, run, catch a kick, your ass.
in Cause it's just like baseball There's no crying You wanna join in? Now you start realizing We're the cool, cool nerds Call me Neil deGrasse Tyson D to the R to the A and S D and D The dungeon master sets up a scenario Then he or she asks Where would you like to go? We talk as a group Then decide together There's no winning, yo We could play forever Questions or clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there, let me answer your questions or clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, I'm on the wall.